wonderful. Okay. Janae, maybe you can help me with this. Wat gebeur in Genesis? In die begin, dan, dan sê, dan, dan gee God vir Adam en Eva opdracht. Wat sê hy vir hulle om te doen? Ja, maar hy, hy sê vir hulle ook iets positiefs. Wat sê hy vir hulle? <laughs> okay, but, if you, if, you, if you remember carefully, what it says is that you are supposed to have dominion. You must reign over the garden. You must multiply, okay, and you must subdue. In other words, you must tain mark. You are supposed to take care of this entire garden. You are supposed to reign. Now, the picture that we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is that this is the very place where heaven and earth overlaps, okay? It is mankind reigning with God. That is the picture of God's kingdom, is what we have in the Garden of Eden, all right? But then everything goes pear-shaped or apple-shaped from, from Genesis 3 onwards. And, and, and what happens? Well, Cain realizes that he's lost this, this presence with God. He realizes something is wrong. And what's the first thing he does? He reigns in the form of a city. He builds a city. So, so he is acting out that dominion um, that, that God told us to do. And I think by virtue of being created in the image of God, we cannot help ourselves. We want to have dominion. But what do we learn about that city? It's a mess. What, what, what used to be dominion becomes domination. What used to be reigning with God becomes subjecting everybody under your, your rule. Does that make sense? It, the, the reign goes wrong, in, and, and we see this in Cain. And later we see this effort to have dominion also go wrong in the, form, in the story of the Tower of Babel. Again, it's dominion, it's reign gone wrong. It is trying to reign without God. And then what you have is the Tower of Babel. And then later, the namesake of the Tower of Babel, the, the Babel itself, becomes, or Babylon, sorry, uh, becomes this image of, 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 of reigning in this tyrannical way. They are not having dominion in the way that God wants it. And we see this in the case of the pharaohs as well in Egypt. Again, it's dominating others. And, and then, tragically, when Israel gets their land, what do they do? What does good King David do? He dominates. He picks a wife off the roof. He sleeps with her. He does whatever he wants. Solomon doesn't do much better, and it's basically, it goes relatively well for two generations, and then it's a mess. And Israel pretty much looks exactly the same as, ex, as, 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 as Egypt before, and, and then their punishment is they are going to be swallowed by even a bigger tyrant, in the form, firstly, of Assyria, and then of Babylon. And eventually they return from the Babylonian exile. And they have this yearning that one day we will again reign with God. We will again have what we had in the Garden of Eden. We will again have dominion. We will have a king. We will be his people. We will have a land. And we will be a kingdom one day. But they get back into Israel. And what happens? Well, 
They were under the rule of the Syrians. Okay, the Babylonians, at least the Syrians let them go, but the Syrians only replaced the Babylonians. They are still not free, even if they are back in their own land. And who replaces the Syrians? The Greeks. Who replaces the Greeks? The Romans. And, and, and these, these Israelites yearn for one day just having this kingdom, one day just having the reign that we had with God, that we lost, and that God has promised to us over and over again in the Psalms, in the prophets, etc., etc. But they reminisce because they hold on to a promise that you find all over the Old Testament, that one day a king will be born from the line of David, and he will restore this reign again. He will bring about the kingdom of God. No more tyrants. He will get rid of the tyrants, and he will restore proper worship with God. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. And it's in this context that we encounter the story. Now, at, at the time in which the Gospels was written, you must know that there was a big buzz around that that God is going to do something big. He's going to get rid of the tyrants that plague the people of Israel. So this is what we read in Luke 2, verse 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, and each to his town. And Joseph, who also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths rather, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is brilliant. Remember the context I just gave you. Luke is very much aware of this context, and he is telling us this story within this context. And, and this, is what's, this is what's going on, okay? If you are powerful, one of the things that you do, the most powerful thing that you can do is to count. You count your people. Why do you count your people? It seems very nice of Augustus. Oh, wow, he's really counting Everybody. Everybody counts in the Roman Empire. Is that what's happening? No, he's counting them so that he can tax them. Okay? When you count Israel, then you say, okay, Israel, you've got so many people, this is the amount of tax that I want from you. When you count people, you want to enlist them. When you count somebody, you are, you, you, he, he is planning to lord it over you. Do you know who was punished for counting his people? King David. Right at the end of the book of Samuel, he, and, and we can't make sense of it because David calls for a census, and then, then the Lord says, I'm going to punish you because you did this. And we're like, what? He's just, that's just good administration. Like, why would God punish him for just being, like, you know, a good ruler, good administration in, 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 in the kingdom? Because David was not allowed to be like the other kingdoms. Because when you count, you tax, you enlist, you are trying to lord it over your subjects. He was supposed to be a different kind of king. So we see the same thing um, uh, coming through the pages of Luke 2. The most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, probably one of the most powerful men who ever lived, is counting his people. But, 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 
we, we see through all of this in a very subversive way how in a dusty corner of the Roman Empire, this counting, this move of power allows Jesus to go back to Bethlehem and we are reminded he is from the line of David, and it's the person, the Messiah from the line of David, who will overthrow the tyrants. And they don't know it, but by issuing, by, by issuing the census, by signing the census, Rome is actually signing a death warrant to its own way of doing things. Are you with me? That's the beautiful irony that is, that is laid in this. Because of this census, that is this absolute move of power, You've got a poor couple in a dusty corner of the Roman Empire. They have to travel to Bethlehem. They are fulfilling ancient prophecy. And from there will arise a leader that will ultimately be the end of Roman empires and all other pagan empires who rule incorrectly. All right, so that's, that's what we are, we are seeing. It's the beginning of the end of that empire. And then Jesus... He grows up, and in his ministry, he starts preaching. And the message that he, say, that, that he preaches over and over again is Matthew 4, 17. We see it all over the place. Um, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand or near. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he doesn't only do that. He calls 12 disciples. What does that mean? What does that symbolize? The 12 tribes of Israel. Ah, oh, Israel is going to come back. We've got the 12 tribes of Israel already established. He's preaching the kingdom of God. It means that he's going to reestablish Israel. There's a massive buzz. This guy is very powerful. It's obvious that God is with him. And what is he going to do? He's going to overthrow the tyrant. At last, the kingdom of God will be established. Proper reign will be established. We will go back towards Genesis 2. Are you with me? Okay. So, his disciples are obviously very excited, as you would be, because you are in the, the inner circle of this movement, and, uh, and, and God's kingdom, the, the, the greatest political thing that's ever happened, is about to be established. So, the disciples are very excited, and, and two of them, in particular, are very excited. And we read what they are about to ask Jesus in Mark 10. So, in Mark 10, from verse 35, we read this. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So, in other words, when the kingdom of God comes finally, we want to ask you to, to have one person sit on the left and one person sit on the right. And then Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink with the baptism with which I am baptized. You will not be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall, shall not be like that among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom to many. So, what's going on here? They are asking to be Jesus' minister of foreign affairs or minister of finance. They want to be part of this kingdom. They want to be in the inner circle of the inner circle when his kingdom comes. And, uh, and, and then Jesus says, let me just tell you something about my kingdom, the kingdom that I've been speaking about all this time, the kingdom that, that I'm about to establish. It doesn't work like all the other kingdoms doesn't work like the kingdom of the pagans. And that's what you guys still have in your mind. You are still in a pagan mindset, John. You are still in a pagan mindset, James. My kingdom does not work by lording it over your subjects, by counting them, by taxing them, by enlisting them. My kingdom comes through service, okay? And then he makes a prediction. He says the climax of his kingdom will be when he gives his life as an act of sacrificial love, and that through that giving his life, he's going to unmask all the tyrants and all the powers of the world. He's going to be exalted. He's going to, he's going to enter his throne, make no mistake about it. And he looks at James and John, he says, but I can assure you, when that happens, you do not want to be on my left or on my right. Because we know what happened when Jesus was enthroned, when he was exalted, he was on a cross, and he didn't want to be on his left or on his right. The disciples are still a little bit unsure. They're still a little bit perplexed at, at, at what Jesus just said, but it seems like his kingdom that he's talking about the whole time is not like the other kingdoms. And then uh, as we come closer to the climax of Jesus' story, we are, we are very close to the cross, and there he's in front of Pilate. Now, this is a wonderful scene. Because this is now where the kingdom of Rome literally meets the kingdom of God. It's face to face. And there we can see uh, the, the two of them having this, this fascinating discussion. This is in John 18 from verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this at your own accord or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose I, have, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Okay, so what's going on there? You've got the representative of Rome, the representative of the empire, versus the, the king of the kingdom of God. You have, this, you have this standoff. And then he says, my kingdom doesn't work the same as your kingdom. And what is one of the key the, 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 the key symbols of that, in your kingdom, you gain power by fighting. 
in my kingdom, if, if my kingdom worked the way that your kingdom works, my, my, my followers would have defended me now. But I told them not to do that. I told them not to pick up the sword. I told them not to take power the way that you pagans do. Do you guys see that? So in other words, he says, my kingdom doesn't work the same as your kingdom. Your kingdom fights. That's how you, how you get power. But you know how my kingdom spread, spreads, how my kingdom operates? Through truth. Through telling the truth. What does Pilate say to that? Truth, smooth. He doesn't know truth. He only knows power. That's the only way that a guy like Pilate can operate. That's the only way that the pagan mindset can work. There's no such thing as truth. There's only such a thing as power. Don't come with with this nonsense of truth. But Jesus says, no, I came to testify of the truth. And what is that truth? Well, that is the kingdom of God, and how we live in the kingdom. And we see the whole time when he teaches on the kingdom of God, how he differentiates it from the kingdom of this world, from the pagans. So, so, so let's, let's look at it, for example. So uh, when, we, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, if you are only kind to your friends, who are you like? You're like the pagans. Even they do that, all right? He's constantly juxtaposing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the pagans. And then he goes on and he says, if you pray and you babble and you look for attention, then you are just like the, the Gentiles, like the pagans. You're just like these, these tyrants that you pretend not to be. And then he goes on and he says, you guys shouldn't be anxious about possessions and what you will eat because who worry about those things? The pagans, worry about those things. He is saying, this is my kingdom of God, this is my kingdom, and this is their kingdom, and you must see the difference between these two kingdoms. And he goes on and he says, in the kingdom of God, you will love your enemy, and then in the kingdom of God, you will get order, but not through violence. That's what the kingdom of man does, or the kingdom of earth. In my kingdom, you will pray, and you will pray without trying to get attention um, uh, from it. In my kingdom, you will not be materialistic. In my kingdom, you will not act on your, on your lust or whatever impulse it is that, is that is emerging in you. In my kingdom, you will be in, in, introspective. You will first take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. In my kingdom, you will be other-centered. You will be focused on other people rather than just on yourself. In my kingdom, everybody has human dignity. Even the poor are blessed. As a matter of fact, they might even be more blessed because they are so dependent on me. It's the upside-down kingdom of God that he is preaching. That is how Jesus is. This is how the kingdom of God comes. Not through violence. Jesus says to Pilate, if I wanted my kingdom to come the same way that you bring your kingdom, then my people will be fighting. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works through teaching, through truth. And that, my friends, is why even if we are a few people, we come together every Sunday, and what do we do? We gather around the teachings of Jesus. We gather around the truth. Why? Because this is how the kingdom of God comes, apparently. It's very bizarre, and it's not very effective, one might say. Guys, we need to bring the kingdom of God. You're right. You get the guitar. I'm going to get the Bible. Um, We're all going to get together. Okay, cool. Let's sing. Let's pray. Let's talk about this. Let's teach. That's not revolutionary. You know, get the axe. 
get the sickle, get the guns. Let's storm to, to uh, union buildings and take what we want. That's the kingdom of earth, not the kingdom of God. Are you guys with me? Now, eventually, the kingdom of Rome wins. Because that's what the kingdom of Rome does. If anybody comes, any of these would-be revolutionaries, these, these messianic movements, they just crush them. They, they die on the spot. They are crucified. And you know what? There's this tragic scene that is, that is theologically so significant. When Jesus dies, Pilate, well, well, when he's about to go to the cross, Pilate says, is that what you want to do to your king? And you know what? What the Jewish leaders say? We have no king but Caesar. They have completely given up on the kingdom of God. They have completely, they are, they are, they are literally saying, we have now fully embraced the kingdom of this world. We are not interested in the kingdom of God. It is absolutely tragic. But remember that the gospel is telling a very subversive story. So when Jesus is on the cross, He's not just on the cross. He's got a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And he's got a robe. And he's exalted on his throne. That is the cross. And Pilate, he thinks he's mocking Jesus. He thinks he's mocking the Jewish leaders. And he writes, King of the Jews, on top of Jesus. And in the meantime, he is, he is acting out this... <laughs> enthronement of Jesus, the day that Jesus became king, but not according to our silly human standards, but according to the kingdom of God. And then you can see the two, the two, the, the difference in kingdoms on the cross. The one dies for his enemies, the other one kills his enemies. You can see the difference between them right there. But the Romans forgot about what C.S. Lewis called deep magic. Right? They, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't pay close attention. And they didn't realize that this act of sacrificial love that Jesus, that by dying on the cross, by ransoming us, remember what Jesus said in, I think it's Mark 10, by, by ransoming us, he rescues us from the trappings of pagan power and rule. And through the resurrection, the kingdom of God is born. The reign of God has now officially begun. The reign that we lost in Genesis 3 has now been restored. We have a king, we have a kingdom, and that's all the earth, and our job is to pray that heaven must, that, 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 it, that his kingdom must come on earth as it is in heaven. So our job is to bring his kingdom even more to the places where his kingdom is not. We need to colonize the, the planet for, for him. And we are called to reign with him. And friends, we see this all over. If you have this lens, you're going to pick it up all over the place. The Great Commission. What does the Great Commission say in Matthew 28? Jesus starts off by saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. I am the king. I know you guys didn't expect it, but my crucifixion, that made me king. I unmasked all the pretend kingdoms of this world on the cross. I have now been inaugurated through the death and resurrection. So now, go and make disciples, get more people into the kingdom, 
And then what does he say? Teach them my commands. Teach them how to live in the kingdom of God. Paul picks up on this as well. Jesus does it in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul does it through the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. He's trying to remind his, he's trying to remind his, 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 his uh, uh, congregants that this is how you live in the kingdom of God. You cannot do that. You cannot do this. This is how we do it in the kingdom of God. That is how you do it on the kingdom of, in, in the kingdom of earth. Remember how we started, friends? We started with Luke. And here in a dusty corner of the Roman Empire, a baby is born from the line of David. And this, this, this baby will establish the kingdom of God. And this baby will overthrow the tyrants of this world, the pagan powers of this world. But Luke writes a second volume. It's called the Book of Acts. And right at the end of the book of Acts, you know how that story ends? It says this. Paul lived there, and he welcomed all who came with him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. The baby in the dusty outcrop of the Roman Empire is now in the heart, in the belly of Rome itself. And what is he doing? He's preaching the kingdom of God to these tyrants who think that they are in control. It went full circle in a very short space of time. Now, let's fast forward to our own time. Because I think we need... We've lost a little bit of imagination of just how radical it was, what Jesus proclaimed, what Paul did, proclaiming the kingdom of God amidst all the, uh, the, the pagan authorities of the day. But you know what? With hindsight, we won. <laughs> the kingdom of God won and is winning. And just, just by the most cursory glance... You can look at the mighty Roman Empire. This was probably never as strong an empire as the mighty Roman Empire. If you go to the Roman to, to, to Europe today, you know what you see? You see Roman ruins. That's what you see. If you go to Rome to this day, you're going to visit Roman ruins, but you can also go to St. Peter's Basilica, probably the biggest church in the world. And there you can see the victory of God and his kingdom. And yes, it comes with a lot of nonsense, and we mess it up as well. But there is a victory there. In the first century, if you had a child, you called that child Brutus, or if they were very impressive, Caesar, or Nero, or something like that. And if you had a dog, you called them John, or James, or, um, or Peter. Today, if you have a child, you call him John, or James, or, or Peter. And if you have a dog, or a pizza parlor, or a casino, you call it Caesar, or Brutus, or Nero. We won. The kingdom of God changed the world, unmasked the pagan powers. And we have work to do because we have to continue this work of the kingdom of God. We have to pray that prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's difficult because you see our kingdoms clash with each other. The kingdom of Yuan clashes with the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Annette clashes with the kingdom of God. That's what humans do. They, they create little kingdoms for themselves. Even Janae, when she drives with you guys on holiday to Hiberdin, and I know you do this, Janae, 
you will sit on the left hand of the car, and the next moment, you will draw a line, and you will say, this is my side, that is your side. You're not allowed on my side, and I'm not allowed on your side. Although, she's very happy to go help herself to anything that is on Christian's side. So what is she establishing there in the car? Her little kingdom. All right. And then they drive. All right. And then there's a, there's a, there's a squabble between the kingdoms of Christian and the kingdoms of Janae, and they fight. And what, you know what happens then? Chris looks back and he says, if, if you guys do not stop it now, I'm going to come back there. Why does he do that? Because he thinks it's his kingdom, the car. And he sends, he sends his hand back there to try and establish order. But it's a little bit difficult because when they move back, they are out of his reach. But if you just slightly on the brakes, they, become, they, they, they get back into contention. All right? So that is just a, um, sort of free advice. But this is, this is the kingdoms that we establish for ourselves. Yesterday, I went to Akhanabiyev yesterday. Yesterday, when we went to the, to the tutoring, we were driving and there was a traffic jam somewhere there by Zambezi off-ramp. And I, being in my own kingdom, feel like it's my responsibility to manage the yellow line. And if anybody comes and they pass there, it's my responsibility to just move in there and block them, okay? Why? Because you cannot skip, you cannot skip the line, no hazards, nothing. They are just being opportunistic, okay? And, and I'm a sinner. Say what? Well, we, we, we were all trying to get on the off-ramp. So, Annette, maybe it was you, come to think of it. Okay, but be that as it may... So, so I, 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 just, I just stopped the guy because this is my kingdom. And this guy is hooting and going crazy. And I'm, I'm perfectly calm. And because I'm blocking him now, he comes on, in on the side of me. And he opens his window and he shouts in an Australian accent. And he uses words that, that I cannot use here. But he says, look at the number plate. I'm a diplomatic car with diplomats. And he says... He says a lot of things that weren't very diplomatic. Um, and, he, and he speeds off, okay? And I, I wanted to stop him again before he, he pushed in front. I wanted to stop him again and say, but what's your emergency? Because just because you're a diplomat doesn't mean that you can drive wherever you want. If you're a diplomat, you cannot... Serial killing is still wrong, even if you're a diplomat. You know, you can't, you can't do these things. So, so what's your emergency? Please, please, please um, help him. And you know what? The majority of yesterday, I spent time plotting revenge, all right? Trying to think, how can I try and identify these guys? Can I phone the Australian embassy? Can I try and find these guys? And uh, just, just because th those guys were going to Dinukeng or somewhere, man. There, there was no diplomatic emergency 12 o'clock on, on a Saturday afternoon, I can assure you. They were young kids and just this entitlement of I'm, I'm a diplomat, I can do what I want. And I was, I've been plotting revenge. Even this morning, I've been plotting revenge a little bit, <laughs> trying to figure out how we can get back at, him, at them. And, uh, I mean, they said things to me to which I wanted to reply, yes, I can. But I'll leave that at that. So, so here's the thing. Our kingdoms clash. Our kingdoms clash. 
And at that moment, I wanted to fight the way that the kingdom of this world fights. But I have sworn allegiance to the King Jesus and to his kingdom. And that means I need to love this person. I need to bless this person. And yes, I need to fight for God's righteousness, but I have to do it in a completely different way than, than that person does it. And this is very difficult. And this is a very stupid example that I just gave you, right? It's just silly road rage. But there are very genuine things where this becomes really difficult. The only way in which we can do it, the only way in we can, that, we can, that we have a chance in being fellow uh, kingdom bringers with God is if we remind ourselves daily of our king who died on a cross, who didn't come into this world to be served, but, he, but to serve, who gave his life as a, a sacrificial offering to many, and through that great act on the cross, he unmasks all the tyrants, all the powers of this world. That is, our, that is our hope and that is our inspiration. And because of him, we have a chance to partake in this kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are sinful. We realize that we are constantly... Mm, trying to establish our own kingdoms and constantly trying to do it in a way that doesn't glorify you. And we repent of that, Lord, because that's what you tell us to do. Repent because the kingdom of God is near. Help us to live in that reality, Lord. Help us to not be coerced into fighting, uh, to fighting with the weapons of this world, but help us to, 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 to really be born again, to be born from above, to receive our instruction, not from this world, but from you and your kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for bringing the kingdom in an act of great love that was the cross and for inaugurating this new life in the resurrection. Again, Lord, I pray that you will forgive us for the way we constantly mess it up. Help us to come together and instead to just try and lord it over people and to fight with power, help us to testify to the truth over and over again. We pray this, Lord. We pray that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. We know that all authority has been given to you and that our job is to go out and proclaim it, Lord. To proclaim that you are king and Caesar is not in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.